the department was moving towards affirmative action hiring and promoting and develop some policies. And, you know, the intent, frankly, was good. And in, in looking back, I mean, the fact that the department has become diverse is a is a good thing. But there were people that were impacted by that negatively that were left out of opportunities after testing for promotion for example the skip promoting issue i mean it was blatantly illegal because they were they were just making decisions on who they were going to promote based on race you can't couldn't do it then legally and you can't do it now just the reality you can't do it there's other ways to do it properly and fairly and making sure the testing is fair and their policies and it happened a it happened a couple of different times during during the 90s at different levels and different ranks. Uh, I mean, looking back, we're a better department because of the diversity in the department. Look, at not every client we have is an angel. But I think those mistakes are far in the minority, just like the traffic stops that go bad we hear about the ones that hit the news with the viral video and that's only one of 10,000 that might have occurred in this country the night before we told the department look at these officers are going to be a suspect in a grand jury referral it's a homicide case you know we need to have the right to access them I got a call from an assistant city attorney that they were going to you know, adopt a policy to allow us access at the scene before any statements are given. We're not going to change the facts. The lawyers aren't going to change that. We're not going to tell them make up a story. We're not going to make up a story. The facts are the facts, but they they can be explained clearly and mitigating circumstances can be explained and things can be brought up that an officer might not, in the heat of a shooting or an IA investigation, may not even think about. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ATO fans. I'm Joe King. Today I'm sitting with Sergeant Kent Wolverton and I wanna give a quick history lesson that will add some context to today's story. The DPA was formed in 1959 by a small group of officers who recognized the need for Dallas to have a voice and representation in issues that affected them. Threatened with discipline, these officers fought through and laid the foundation upon which the Dallas Police Association was built. The early days of the DPA were not easy for its members. The city government viewed the formation of the association as a unionization of the police force. Legal representation was always going to be a need for officers as politics, public perception, critical incidents, landmark cases to protect officers' rights, such as fighting for promotion skip, 
forcing the department to protect the rights of injured officers, such as the Ron Escaro case, representing officers at IED for responding to the scene of critical incidents. There has been a long-standing partnership with a dedicated firm. This is a story of this firm, a trusted legal bulwark for officers. The name Lyon, Gorski, and Gilbert has long been synonymous with Texas peace officers and is the standard for the protection of their rights. Today's guest has dedicated his life to serving those who serve. 44 years of representing the Dallas Police Association and its members. He moved to Dallas in 1974 to attend the SMU School of Law. He served as a clerk for DPA's first lawyer in 1976. He's worked with every DPA president since Charlie Burnley and every Dallas chief of police since Don Burt. He's the husband to the beautiful wife, Cammie, father to Michael and Sarah, avid thoroughbred racing enthusiast, tireless and fearless defender of first responders. I think this quote by President Abraham Lincoln is very fitting for today's guest. Character is like a tree and reputation is like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. ATO listeners, Bob Gorski is the real thing. Bob Gorski, thank you so much for sitting down with us. You've you've represented us and, and supported us for hell as long as I've been almost as long as I've been alive. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me and congratulations on your success with oh, the podcast. It's it's a work in progress, but we're we're filling it out. We got uh we got a lot of people like you that support us and uh coming on here. I have not I do not have a shortage of guests. I mean, I've had people coming i've got people all over the country that are wanting to try to come on and tell their story and i'm like well we're, we're gonna get to you but when you when i when i when i saw uh your interest i it was a no-brainer i had to i had to get it i was going i i've been wanting to ask you for the longest time and i was like man i don't know if he's gonna want to do this oh no i'm looking forward to it this is fun it's gonna be fun welcome to the small time yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very low rent. Yeah, and 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 for the listeners, we are actually recording in the uh, the offices of of uh, of our attorneys today. So we're actually in the back room. It's almost like the modified broom closet of the of the DPA. So we could we got we got booted out of our regular recording room. Our DPA offices. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not the. <laughs> it's not yours. When this building. Uh, came to be 2013 as i recall three uh 2003, 2003 now yeah, that's right we made this space available for us and and someone's usually here about every day of the week oh yeah yeah john and zach and yeah. all those guys are they're always cre- creeping around we actually had to kick john out of here right when we got here and he was in here watching youtube or something playing around <laughs> <laughs> are you ready to dive into this ready all right bob where did you grow up I grew up in Kenmore, New York, which is a suburb of Buffalo. It's just adjacent to Buffalo, New York. And I went to Kenmore West Senior High School and uh, have a brother uh, who lives in Arlington, Virginia, and two great parents who are still alive at 101 and 98, respectively. Those are some strong (laughs) bloodlines there. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, yeah. That's great, though, man. what was home life like growing up in New York? You know, my dad had a home furnishings business. He initially started selling pots and pans and drapes and things house to house and 
built that into a little business and then segued into the furniture business. He was a hard worker. Uh, he, he worked until about 1991 when they sold the business and went to Florida f- to live, and now they're in Plano. Oh, wow. Going from New York to Florida with that with that weather. Yeah. From one extreme to another, and then now you're now in Plano, Texas. Well, I like the kid that when you're 65 and Jewish, you have to leave and go to Florida from New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those, you know, I've never been to New York. That's on my bucket list. I want to go. Yeah. Were you New, a Yankee fan? New York? No, no. Right. No. I, you know, I followed the Buffalo. had a minor league team, always affiliated with a major mm-hmm. league team, and I used to follow the Buffalo Bisons. I wasn't okay. particularly a big Yankee fan, but what people don't realize is New York State, between Buffalo and downstate towards New York City, is beautiful. I mean, New York has a lot of great scenery and lakes, and people think of New York as New York City and, right. and the bad parts of New York City, but that's really just one small part of, of New York State. You a Buffalo Bill fan? Big Buffalo Bill Oh, yeah. Bill they're, they're, I, my, think, I think they're the team to beat this my year. My father, even though he's been out of Buffalo for many years, has kept his season tickets. and I, In fact, I'm going back for the Pittsburgh game in two weeks. They should clobber them. They should. I hope so. No, if yeah, they're healthy. They, yeah, I know. I, yeah, I, but I, I like I like that quarterback. I like Allen, and yeah, he's they're, they're good. He's, they're a good team. He's great. He's yeah. Great. Well, if it wasn't for the Cowboys there in the nineties, y'all might have. Y'all should have. Y'all should have beat the Giants in in uh, the Parcells in that group, and y'all should have beat. Uh, y'all should have beat the Cowboys. I think. Just wide, a few field goals. Wide yeah. right. Yeah. Wide yeah. right was tough. <laughs> yeah, that poor bat. What was that? What was that? Norwood, Scott right? Norwood. Scott Norwood. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, of course they were beating the Cowboys at halftime. I think in the second one, the second one they yep. played the yep. first time they got beat pretty badly. Yeah, yeah, they they played. Y'all scored first, and then that in that uh, first game, and then Cowboys never looked back. Right. The, yeah, but no, that that I got to say though that Giant and Buffalo game, that was still one of the greatest Super Bowls I've ever watched. It was. It was I mean, because they were playing with Hostetler, you know, right. the quarterback. He, the Phil Sims had gotten hurt for the Giants, and he, he was kind of a spare backup that caught fire, and that really was one of the most enjoyable Super Bowls I've seen. Yeah, it was. I yeah, mean, it, not for a Buffalo fan, but yeah. We're talking football here for our fans that are under the yeah. age of 30 and have never seen the Cowboys win. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, well, it's kind of come full, full circle for the for the Buffalo Bill fans because they used to have Jim Kelly and the K-Gun offense and Thurman Thomas and – Bruce Smith and uh, all those yeah, badasses. Yeah, on top of all that. Oh, no. I, 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 I mean, I really respected and appreciated what they were doing with that no-huddle offense back in the 90s and, and when it wasn't being done by anybody else. Well, to go way back in Buffalo history, Jack Kemp was yeah. the quarterback in the 60s, and uh, my brother identified him as, as a future political star because Kemp was active in the community and – and had put out some signals that he was interested in politics. So my brother went to him when he retired from the Bills, and I think about 1969, 69, 68, I think I'm guessing now, and told him, if you go to Washington, if you run for Congress, I want to work for you. And my brother ended up going to work for him and worked for him until the 80s. Wow. And we became friendly with the Kemp family enough to the point where he wrote me a, a great, recommendation letter for smu law school which i have framed so i'll never forget oh, that's that. a great letter so he he was a great guy and a really nice family in fact when when his son jeff was about 10 
Richie, my brother, and I took him to a football game in Washington when I was visiting. And Jeff went on to become a pro quarterback as well. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Fans uh, or ATL fans or new fans just tuning in, we we really aren't a sports talk uh, <laughs> podcast. We really we are a first responder geared, but uh, we do to, we sprinkle in some sports when we get a chance. Yeah, we'll never skip a chance to talk about how the Cowboys used to win football games. Yeah, and now we're hey, you know, did you do you dislike the Cowboys or do you? No, you kinda, no, you kinda, I'm, I'm a fan. If, okay, if, okay, I mean, I love to see them play the Bills, and yeah. I'll probably be a Bills fan for that Super Bowl. But if that ever comes to be, well, hey, <laughs> hey, I think I, th- I think Buffalo is going to make it this year. But I don't think the Cowboys are. Um, what was home like? Tell us about the Gorski family growing up. What was home well, like? Well, my my dad was a very hard worker. Uh, he worked six days a week, and uh, you know there were there were many Saturday the league foot uh, baseball games and in sporting events that he couldn't make because he was working, having a business of his own. He needed to be in his at his store. Uh, but uh, my mom, you know took care of everything my dad couldn't take care of and and uh my father just was a great example for my brother and i in terms of his work ethic and and uh, just teaching us all the right things growing up and and that you carry that over to what you do and how you live your life i hope so i mean i and i i I think i do because i was always asked my wife some time about it uh, Working hard and working long hours. I'm trying to. I'm trying to slow down a little bit these days, and I think I'm being successful at that. But uh, it's it's hard to break that that pattern. I, I think the listeners were done when the, when this is all said and done. I think they're going to agree with that work ethic that uh, your parents instilled many years ago. That they're going to see that carried over to you and in your family. Yeah, thank you. Um. Your parents are still alive. You talked about you said one hundred and one and ninety eight. Can you talk about that? Yeah, my 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 father still plays the stock market and sends my brother and I regular emails regarding the Buffalo Bills and his analysis of the past and future games. Uh, actually, a couple of years ago, he didn't do it this last year, but a couple of years ago, he sent us his mock draft in the first wow. round of the NFL, who he thought teams were going to pick. Uh, I probably get two or three emails a day from him regarding the stock market. You know, you have this stock. I have this one. I'm selling this one. I might buy this one. And uh, it's remarkable. He slowed down physically, as you would expect, but he still gets around pretty well. And uh, uh, he takes care of my mom. Uh, My mom's got some health issues, and uh, they have some caregivers that come in during the day and overnight to help her out and my dad is just devoted to her like you just can't imagine in making sure she's being taken care of it, but at 101 uh, you know okay. and and still mentally sharp i mean it's if he's, amazing yeah he's emailing daily and i mean i can't get my parents to hardly figure out how to turn their iphone he keep, off he keeps a meticulous record of every stock he has and every bond and when the dividends or the interest is due and you know, I've been trying to get him to let me take over some of his, you know, paying his bills and doing things of that sort. And uh, he's getting closer to maybe letting me do a little more of that because because he's always so busy taking care of my mom. Yeah. Making sure that whoever's there, whatever caregiver is there is 
getting her medicine and she's eating right and all those things because she needs some prompting on some things. But she is still, I mean, she knows us and, Mm -hmm. you know, still refers to me as her beautiful boy every time I walk in the apartment. And so, uh, you know, uh, Knockwood, uh, you know, she, she's, she's doing as well as she can right now. That's sweet. What's their secret to longevity? My dad takes care of his health. He's, he's amazing. I mean, he, he, you put a piece of pie under him, he'll say, no, I don't need the sugar. Now, wow. when I'm 101, I'm going to probably want to eat whatever I want. Right. Yeah. But he's very cognizant of, you know, he likes bread, but he doesn't overeat it, you know, in his carbs. And he's very careful about his sugar. And, you know, he just, he follows doctor's orders and he does as much exercise as he can do at these, at this point of his life. Um, and, uh, he's very disciplined and always has been, and that's reflected in how hard a worker I think he was, you know, taking care of us and the family and, you know, running his business. And that's incredible. You know. So just, I'm amazed that somebody that's, uh, over a century old is actually sending emails and, and used to send yeah. emails. Oh yeah. He'll com- yeah. he'll complain about the computer something's yeah. not working right. He'll complain about the iPhone, but uh, <laughs> he, he manages those things pretty he, well. He's onto something. Those he, things never work right. <laughs> you think like the the work ethic and just the unity and, and sense of family? Do you think that that's the biggest characteristics well, you you took from them? I hope he instilled in me the need to take care of your family obviously not only love your family but make sure their needs are taken care of uh preparing for the future um you know and as as a kid growing up it i never resented or thought negatively that he was working late or working on saturdays because i knew what he was doing and why he was doing it yeah yeah, i always knew that and i always respected that and it was never like uh, you're not around enough, and and you know, I mean, Sunday was his day off. Uh, uh, they used to, my mom and dad would want to go to Florida in the winter. Being in Buffalo, the, their vacations were typically the winter time, not the summer. Dallas mm-hmm. seemed like more people take yeah. off in the summer than they do in the winter time. And we'd go to Florida, and uh, uh, two weeks two and a half weeks at some point february march sometimes it was spring break sometimes we just got out of school back in those days you could do that probably easier than you can now yeah and that was vacation time you know and maybe some short trips and occasionally he'd have to go to new york on business you know for a buying trip or something we might go with him in the summertime we did that a number of times so uh but when when we were all together i mean just there was never any question about how much he cared for my brother and I and my mom like to lay around me, my, me personally. I'd hate laying around. I hate wasting time. And it doesn't right. sound like no, he didn't, wasted any he time. He didn't waste any time. And he's he still not whatever time, whatever he's yeah. able to do now, oh, yeah. is, is what he's still doing. Do you still, you believe you still do you, you still work within that model? Yeah, I, I try to. Yeah. And, and, you know, even though I'm trying to handle a few less cases of my own at the firm, Right. I'm still on top of what we're doing, and I'm at the office, and I'm monitoring what's going on amongst the lawyers and the cases that we're handling. So I'm still trying to stay as, as busy in that respect. Speaking of the firm, I want to get into when did you decide you wanted to get into 
practicing law? Well, I like to tell you that I always wanted to be a lawyer and that I always wanted to represent law enforcement, but that's not the case. Yeah. I, I really kind of fell into it. Um, when I was in college, uh, I don't initially when I started college, I had some interest in maybe going into pharmacy or medicine. I learned quickly that sciences weren't my thing. Um, I was I started Ohio State University and I transferred back to Buffalo State University mm-hmm. of New York at Buffalo where I graduated from. When I went back to Buffalo, I was co-director of a newly formed Big Brother Big Sister program. Have you heard of Big Brothers of America? Actually, mm-hmm. the 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 group in Buffalo I was involved with later became part of Big Brothers and Big Sisters. But I was the co-director of the program, and I liked working with juveniles, working with kids, and you know I had a little couple of different little brothers while I was in college, but I was also helping administer the program. So there was a time when I thought I was going to go into social work. Mm. And people I knew that were in social work as I was finishing up college were always complaining about the government, you know, funding the bureaucracy and dealing with all that. And I thought, you know, if I really want to work with juveniles, I probably can do as much as a lawyer and that's what prompted me to apply to law school. What did you feel most re- most rewarding with dealing with the juveniles? And you know, I, I can't really say there is one thing. It was just something that interests me. And and you know, I thought we. I mean, with the program I was involved in, we did a lot of good things for kids that didn't have a father, right. boys that didn't, and girls that didn't have a, a father or a mother. Mostly boys back at that time seemed like we're in the program. It's expanded so much now. It's a major program in western New York. But uh, uh, at the time we started, we were dealing with all college kids that were being the big brothers, big sisters. And now, now it's just community-wide. But uh, I, I just I knew we were doing good things for kids and i i like that it was rewarding well they are the future yeah you know and and i knew as a lawyer if i if i worked in the juvenile justice system which i did for early part of my career while i was getting my feet wet it'd be a little bit different because i was dealing with a different type of juvenile obviously ones that were involved in the juvenile justice system but um but that's what prompted me to apply to law school and uh I had always had an interest in Texas, and I can't explain where that even came from. I used to listen to WBAP, you know, had the big wow. signal that we could we could pick up at night in Buffalo. They picked the, you picked and, that up there. It's eight twenty, eight twenty, right? Bill Mack, yeah, Bill Mack had his radio show in the trucker the trucker show late. At, usually, he'd pick it up like after ten or eleven at night when that signal really it was like fifty thousand watt signal. And I I just hear about Texas, and I like country-western music, and it was something I was interested in doing. So when it came time to apply for law school, I I didn't apply to University of Texas because it was so hard to get into as an out-of-stater. I mm. knew that. I didn't even try. I applied to Houston, St. Mary's, and SMU, and then I applied to Buffalo, which I ended up on the waiting list at University of Buffalo, and uh, Hofstra in New York yeah. and Long Island, and uh Got into all of them, but Buffalo, I was on the waiting list. But uh, but I knew Dallas had, one, at that time, one law school. I assumed I'd probably stay where I went to law school. I'd never been to Dallas before. I'd been to Houston once, and it was February, and, and you know, I saw some palm trees, and it was 70 degrees in Houston. I think <laughs> yes. it's great, yeah. you know. Uh, so I, I 
accepted to go to SMU. If I had gotten in Buffalo, I was on the waiting list. And if I had gotten in, because I had graduated from there and I was, I liked Buffalo growing up in the area. I wasn't trying to, I didn't like the winters, but yeah, I, I might've stayed, but uh, I got into SMU and uh, I never visited Dallas or SMU before I actually drove in with my stuff on my birthday in 1974 <laughs> to start school. It's the year I was born. <laughs> you know, <probably>. so <laughs> Randy too. <laughs> so that's what brought me here, and uh, the rest is history. So when you got here in 74, what was the name of that law, the law school program? S- Southern Methodist University. Okay. Yeah, Deadman School. Deadman school? De- yeah, okay. right. Yeah, we had, a, uh, we had one of the prosecutors on with the DA's office, uh, Michelle Sugart. She came on the uh, podcast. That's where she uh, she went to the Deadman School of Law as well, and it, it it's got. Back then, did it have such a good reputation as being a great law school? Yeah, it, okay. no, it had a, it had a very good reputation. They they wanted to build a national base. It it actually helped me that I that I lived out of state because they were actually trying to to grow their school with people oh, from around the country, um, and. Uh, and I had I had really good grades. My board scores were average, but back then, anyway, I don't know what it's like now. They focused on grades and activities. My involvement with that program, I think, helped me. And so I had some things in my resume that fit the kind of students that they were accepting. But it always had a good reputation. I know over the years it's gotten harder and harder and harder yeah. to get into the school. I don't know the you know today i'd be able to get into the school based on my numbers back right. then but um but it was always considered a good school and like i say it was the only law school in the in this area at that time you're right in the heart of dallas for the listeners that yeah. are out of, that that have never been to dallas smu is centrally located in dallas texas right university it's, park which is yep a city within the borders of dallas yeah it's a, oh it's a beautiful school yeah. um when you got here in the seventies, that's when the Cowboys were humming. You know, we had stall by we, you know, Landry. Yep. They were going, and uh, it was when you got here. I think it was prior to that that Dallas TV show starting up. When you you were in, yeah, you, I can't remember when. Da- it was the late seventies, like seventy nine. Yeah, that's right. It that's was. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you ever watch that when you? When oh you were, yeah. Yeah, did you, yeah. What did you? Well, I always reference my mom. Uh, God arrest Carmen King. She loved. Uh, the TV show Dallas and hated Jr. and loved Bobby <laughs> Ewing, just like all the other women in Dallas. Well, I, I you know, b- having been down here that time for a few years, you know, I could see what was realistic and what wasn't yeah. realistic. Well, you, it, know, you so. know what I was telling somebody because we just went to the um, the Cattle Barons Ball at South Fork uh, this past weekend. It was a really good time. It was the first time I I went down there, but I love going to South Fork because there's so much history just from that show, and I used to watch it with my mother, but. In season one, they actually had a uh, a blizzard come through at South Fork Ranch, and they got held. the The Ewan family got held oh, wow. up in the house at a blizzard, in you know, you know, a blizzard. Those have happened here, yeah, just recently. Yeah. <laughs> global warming, but <laughs> wow. so how did you get involved with the uh, the Dallas Police Association? Because you know, tell us that that process sure. and how that how that you you became a clerk, right? For the yeah. So while I was in law school, my actually end of my first year of school i wasn't gonna work part-time anywhere but i was at a party and one of my classmates who was in a study group with me came into the party i'll never forget this i, I could i his name is tom martin and if, if tom ever hears this or anyone knows tom i think he practices in fort worth uh, thank god for for 
Tom because Tom came in and said, hey, the firm I'm clerking at needs another clerk. Do you want to work? And I knew the name of the firm or he told me the name. And Phil Burleson, who was the founder of the firm and the DPA's first lawyer, was often in the newspaper. Phil, Phil was a high-profile criminal defense attorney. When he, when he left the DA's office in, I think, around 1960, is when 5960 yeah. is somewhere he, in that area. He, he left the DA's office. That's when the people who organized the DPA came to him to help them. So they did that early on. DPA was formed in 1959. Yeah, so, so that, that would have been. It yeah. was early on, huh? Yeah. Okay. And so Phil was was fresh out of the DA's office at that point in time. Hmm. And uh, Phil was later asked by Melvin Belli to assist him in the Jack Ruby defense. Wow. So Phil was in that on that team. And actually, skip forward a little bit, after Belli was convicted, Phil took over doing the appeal, and Phil got Ruby's conviction reversed because on a change of venue argument that they should have moved the case out of Dallas. Really? But Ruby died of cancer before he could be retried. I had never That's, heard of that. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, so I heard Phil's name mentioned. I mean, knew his Phil, Phil's name from the newspapers, and I thought to myself, you know, maybe I better take this opportunity. It may be something you'll regret if you don't go to work f- for these folks. Mm-hmm. That's why I took the job. And then right about that time, the Colin Davis case broke out of Fort Worth. Phil went off to Amarillo for the longest time. Of course, there were two cases, ultimately. There was another prosecution later. So Phil was gone for a couple of years in there, pretty much full-time working on the Davis case. But Jack Jack Pate, another partner of Phil's, was also working on the police business. And so that's really what got me involved in representing officers. Can you, t- you know, you, you mentioned the Colin Davis case. Can you, uh, do you remember much about that? Can you just tell the listener a little bit about that? Well, Colin Davis was a very wealthy Fort Worth uh, industrialist. I guess they yeah. they called him. He had a number of businesses. His family had a number of businesses, and uh, he was accused of shooting his ex estranged wife. I think they were going through a divorce mm-hmm. at that time, and killing excuse me, a killing uh, her daughter from another marriage and shooting her boyfriend and injuring him pretty seriously there may have been someone else that was killed in the shooting and he denied it you know and and he hired phil and racehorse haynes out of houston and then a couple of the other lawyers in our firm that that were involved in criminal defense work uh were also involved so that team represented davis he was acquitted in amarillo eventually in trial Mm mm-hmm and then later was accused of trying to have the judge in his divorce case killed, and he was acquitted of that case as well. I don't remember what year that finished up, but uh, it was that, a long drawn yeah, out. That, it, it it was kind of like a de- uh, Texas area, uh, you know, Texas area um, OJ type. Right. I mean, it was a big deal. He was a multi billionaire. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, he, he had a lot of money. Yeah, that's a fascinating case. You said Racehorse Haynes. That's got to be one of the coolest names. I had to look it up. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Well, he was was a tremendous lawyer. And Phil and him were good friends. And uh, and Racehorse, 
uh, it was a great trial lawyer, and uh, uh, I think he had some he had some record at some point of not losing a case, you know, in trial over um, many number of years. I don't know what it was, but uh, uh, yeah, that that's impressive. I mean, he's like a. Uh but it, for the time he would, you know, they always had cool nicknames for some of these guys. It's but he was like a kind of like a Johnny Cochran type, or uh, he, he was then. very flam, yeah. flamboyant. Yeah. And and he and Phil complimented each other because Phil was a detailed oriented lawyer. I don't think Phil was known for flamboyancy in the courtroom, yeah. but he was very meticulous about preparing. We talk about work ethic. Phil Phil also did a lot of civil work. He a lot of people heard his name and associated him with his criminal defense only. But he did a lot of civil cases, and and he had a motorcycle accident case for a young fellow who was a football player in East Texas who hurt his leg very badly. And uh, I worked on the case with Phil, and I'll never forget this. Phil left me a list of 82 things to do on the case okay i mean in detail just a small list but, just 82. but 81 of them were specific you know do this this find this do this and 82 was you come up with 81 more of your own that was how <laughs> wow. we thought yeah and it, it, that stuck with me i've told that to many people over the years because that's the way phil was and uh, so phil was the guy that was coordinating for example in the davis case uh, you know, all the investigation that was being done and just the prep work, you know, I think racehorse focused on being in the, the presenter. At the he time. was a kind of a presentation. And they both, they yeah. both get, were involved in the trial with witnesses and so forth. But, but racehorse wasn't, I don't think brought in for the prep part and right. the details, but Phil, Phil was on top of that. And he was, he, you know, he oversaw all of that. Let me ask you this. What, what style do you, do you like flamboyant? as a presenter no i think i'm more on the detail side very frankly i mean i try to do what i can do but you know you some of that is just the nature of the personality of the lawyer and how they are in the in a courtroom but i know i've always had success when i prepared and i I was focused on the 81 things to do and how yes. many more am I missing? But some, it really depends on how receptive it, uh, the jury, right? Or a judge, what they, cause a lot of people, they see flamboyant lawyers on movies, go back to Perry Mason show. There is always, it, it's always an extreme when you see a courtroom right. case. And usually that's not no. how it goes. Courtrooms are usually a lot duller than yeah. what you're going to watch on television. Yeah. You don't, you don't get to stand up, three inches in front of the witnesses and scream in their face you, know, you don't get yeah. to do that it's not like on a few good <laughs> you, men you might get yeah. to approach the witness if you're showing them an exhibit you right. might have some opportunity but it's not like you'll see on television you're not screaming in their face you, no they, and they rarely they, confess they, on the witness stand <laughs> yeah damn so from from your perspective how did the department look at the lawyers being involved with the association well um when I started in 78, and one of the things, I'm going to go back one second. When I was 12 years old, watching the Kennedy assassination mm. unfold that weekend, I never thought that, you know, 10 years later, roughly 10 years later, I'd be around some of the police officers and the players like Phil and the Don Fluche seniors who was, you know, I know a witness when the Warren Commission did their investigation because he was sitting out there on uh, Main Street 
near the near the the uh, jail when Oswald was shot, and I never knew I'd get to know and meet those people and and be around. I went to law school with some people that later got involved in some of the post Kennedy shooting controversies and the you know so forth. So, um, uh, but when I started practicing, so I, I started as a clerk, you know, helping. Mm-hmm working on some things but when i got my law license actually i stayed on with the firm as an associate attorney at that time officers called us after the fact of getting fired or suspended in other words we didn't get the phone call typically as as i recall how that worked those days we didn't get the phone call very often with oh i'm under an investigation or i need certainly i we didn't get to go out to a police shooting or go to internal affairs. Most of the time it was sort of late in the game that they would need a lawyer because they got days off or they got fired and the association provided representation. That's the way, as I recall it, Phil and Jack were, were involved back in those days. So when I got involved in it, I remember going to a board meeting with the DPA with Jack Pate And I had a list of the cases that we had and really talked to them about we need to get involved sooner rather than later. So I kind of tried to develop that as something that would help the officers if we're more involved with their representation the earlier than the later. And that was nine years into you? No, that was 1978, 79 when I first began. When you started pushing that one? First began working as a licensed lawyer as a member of the firm as an associate in the law firm but um it really was about 1980 81 that the focus really started to shift towards us being involved in in officer involved shootings immediately um we had a controversial case in 1980 we had uh, an officer his name was danny kane i, I don't think there's a problem with me giving his name it's a very well publicized case back in the day and danny was a very good officer it's not daryl kane that was a shooting the santos rodriguez case in the 70s they're not related but danny was a very good officer who came home from i i think he had worked all night and gone to court that morning came to his house and there were two burglars in his home one ran out the door and he caught the other one in his bedroom he handcuffed him in front and was of course he didn't have a cell phone he was going to call 911 and then he looked back to the guy and he came up with a gun he had taken danny's gun out of a nightstand and so i got a call i don't remember how i got the call that this had happened he wanted to talk to a lawyer so i met him down at headquarters and the investigators and as i remember a city attorney showed up and they took him into a room to interrogate him but they wouldn't let me attend you know and danny panicked because he had shot this guy he had taken the handcuffs off of him after the shooting i think Mm. he felt oh shit i shouldn't shouldn't have cuffed him i did and he did not tell them the truth about all that and um of course, later we had a chance to talk to him, and it was going to be presented to the grand jury. Uh, he was no build on the shooting. He passed a polygraph about what 
had happened, that he did, it was self-defense, it was a legitimate shooting, but he panicked during the interview, and he was fired for lying. He was not fired for the shooting, he was fired for lying to investigators. So that really got the association's attention in terms of we need to push for an opportunity to be present with these officers. Before they get themselves yeah. in. Yeah, and Danny control. lost the, the civil service appeal because of the fact that he didn't tell the truth. I, I'm convinced Danny was a very good officer and, and I'm convinced that if we had talked to him, it would have all been explained. Oh, of course, you know, he was and justified. He was least. justified in yeah. the shooting, but, um, you know, he didn't have that opportunity. Um, uh, so there were, there were a couple other shootings that got a lot of public attention between then and the 80, I'll say about 1982. Um, I think I found looking through m- my scrapbook, actually, an article about how many controversial shootings Dallas had in those days. And at some point, and I don't remember the, I should have looked this up before today, there was a congressional committee that came down to investigate. They had hearings, Dallas's you know, use of force and how they were handling yeah. their relations with the minority community and so forth vis-a-vis the officer-involved shootings. And um, I know we had another case involving some officers that they wanted. They asked it. To, I mean, one officer was literally shot, but he was he survived, fortunately. And he was asking, is it taking him away in the gurney? I want to talk to the DPA attorney. And But we weren't allowed to go out to the scene at that point in time. So uh, with the DPA's support, we told the department, look, at, he's, these officers are going to be a suspect in a grand jury referral Uh, it's a homicide case you know we need to have the right to access them and uh we made a demand upon the city i think we told them you know we're going to file a suit on you know next monday if we don't get an agreement and that friday before that weekend before the deadline we had set i got a call from an assistant city attorney that they were going to you know, adopt a policy to allow us access at the scene before any statements are given. And so that that was the first agency I was aware of that that implemented that type of policy. Took a little longer, some of the suburbs. I remember Plano, Chief Glasscock, who was mm-hmm. a very good chief out there, and we had a good relationship. But it had heads occasionally, but but we had a good relationship. I remember he called and asked that I help them with a policy that they could implement. And so eventually it worked its way throughout the law enforcement community. And for clarification, yep. that's that's similar to what every private citizen has the opportunity to do. It's not like the officers are receiving special treatment. Right. They're just now receiving equal treatment. Yeah, because any, any private citizen can say, I'm not going to talk to you without my lawyer, and there's no way – an investigator can force them. The department had the hammer of you talk to us or we're going to fire you for not talking to us. And so, right. you know, uh, fortunately the, the laws changed in, in that area to some extent in terms of when an officer does talk to an investigator administratively, like internal affairs, theoretically that can't be used in a criminal prosecution, but uh, but none, you know, there wasn't any separation of those processes back then. It was simply, you work for us, you got to talk to us, answer questions. And so we pushed back on that. 
in, well, the Dallas Police Association, that was the only association at the time when this happened. I, like, I believe so. Yeah. I don't think the other organizations really developed until uh, probably the early 90s. I would wow. Think. Okay. Yeah. And, Bob, you mentioned in that Kane uh, shooting about the city attorney being there during that. When I, – I don't recall ever city attorneys being involved now. When did that stop and why did that change? Or would it be helpful if they're more involved now or – is there an explanation for that? Do you have a good one? Uh, no, I mean, it's, I don't know that'd be helpful or hurt if they're involved, like in an officer involved shooting. We, we, for example, in Garland, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's the norm. Their legal advisor usually shows up at the scene. Now, he may not do very much. He may just stand there and unless ID has a question for him or the investigators do. So I don't, you know, I don't, there's no threat to having them out there. I just, I remember there was someone from the city attorney's office that joined in on the investigation, why they did it then. And, you know, that wasn't something that we have routinely seen since we started going out in 1983, I think is when we actually began and or I began regularly going out at that time, uh, we would not see city attorneys. In uh, I saw in your bio, in 1985, you actually first time repping an officer in IED. And we're talking about officer-involved shootings so far, but there's many other things that an officer would, would need representation. Right. Use of force, I mean, you know, it didn't just – people accuse us of uh, stealing and, it, it you know, and, and whatever, but – what was that experience like when you first go to IED? Yeah. How'd you get treated well, as a we, we we had a push for that, and we began that push probably around the same time we were asking for access after an officer-involved shooting. And before we go too far in a second, I need to tell you about my first shooting that I okay. went to. Yep. I'll never forget that one. But um, we finally convinced the city that, look it, in some of these cases, when officers are under investigation for misconduct, there's going to be a civil suit. You're going to get sued. And it's in your best interest, city, that an officer write a statement that's, that's coherent and well explains his actions because that statement's, just like in a police shooting, that statement's yeah. going to be used in his exhibit in a civil case. So... I think that finally got through to them that, yeah, this really can protect the city as well. We're not going to change the facts. We always have focused on, on this argument with the city and trying to get access to our clients. The lawyers aren't going to change that. We're not going to tell them to make up a story. We're not going to make up a story. The facts are the facts, but they they can be explained clearly, and mitigating circumstances can be explained, and things can be brought up that an officer might not, in the heat of a shooting or an IA investigation may not even think about. And so it's, it's in everyone's best interest to have all that clearly out on the table. And it, so that's and, been our argument all the time. And like Kent just said that those are the same rights that are afforded to any other citizen. Sure. Right. Sure. Now that, that was one of the big things I've, I've been unfortunate to need legal representation and, the big takeaway for me was that they're just on a different level of thinking during the crisis. You know, when, when you're involved with something like that, your mind isn't thinking clearly about everything else. You're more worried about what did right. I, what's going on, how, where, what's going to happen. And it really helped to have somebody else who was calm and level-headed and, and could look at it from a different perspective than either an investigator or an involved officer. And that's, that's why we've always 
focused on having some breathing room after an officer-involved shooting from the time of the incident till actually the statements are given to investigators. I know there are people that complain that you sh- they should get the statement immediately and don't give them any chance to, to sleep on it. But frankly, the, the science in the, in the law enforcement profession has, has reached the point where I think it's recognized that at least a sleep cycle is needed because officers are... F- uh, they're just not focused on the things that you or I might focus on immediately after a shooting. And then there needs to be some time, you know, uh, and, you know, at, at least a day or some period before they're really put to the test of walking through all the details. Yeah, even if, even the most justifiable of shootings, the the officer involved still has to wrap their head around and and they take a lot, you know, they took a life, right? Whether it was justified or not, and they go through a traumatic incident. And you could take ten different officers with ten different experiences or similar training and experiences. They're going to react differently, and they're going to think differently about that incident. Right? They may have taken a life, and they faced their own life being taken. Yes, in that and same moment. In the back of our mind, we all we do always know that we understand the public public perception and the legal ramifications down the road from those that we have to face too and we have to have that in our mind immediately and then immediately afterwards and there probably aren't too many officers that ever get into officer involved shooting or listen to say they didn't even pull the trigger they get shot at that they sleep well that night anyway right that's right yeah the body is pretty remarkable in the way that it processes everything and you like you said you probably don't sleep that first night and then your body's still recovering, your mind's still working through all the, the chemicals that were dumped into you during that, that whole procedure. And so, yeah, two or three days, I think that's probably the bare minimum. And I, I think the more yeah. the science starts to look at it, the more they'll say it needs to be even longer. Yeah. Walk us through that first shooting. Okay, so my first opportunity to actually go to the scene was a, a drug, I don't know if it was a gang or a, it was a drug shooting out of a drug group, Plenty Jamaican, of those. <laughs> Jamaican j- drug group, and I never forget walking into the apartment and seeing a puddle of red on the floor. Pointing over to it and asking a detective, "Is that where he was shot?" And the detective says, "No, that's where a bottle of wine tipped over. The body's <laughs> over there." And sure enough, just like the Naked Gun movies, you know, you remember those Naked <laughs> yeah. Gun with a camera. My eyes shifted from the, the red wine on the floor. And I thought, Gorski, you've got a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know the Jamaicans were big red wine yeah, fans. Yeah, yeah. there's wine. Uh, <laughs> I don't ca- know. Cabinet, I just cab remember thinking, oh, gosh, I can't figure. Okay. <laughs> you know, because I'm, you know, looking back at it, I mean, I worked hard to try to learn your profession. Of course. And applying it to what I had to do as a lawyer, but I didn't have a police background. And I, at that point, I was, you know, five years as a lawyer. And so there's a lot I had to learn and, 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 and did and still, still learning. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Well, it's ever changing too. since we know. Of course. So when did you uh, start your own firm? Okay. Can you, you tell us that little story? Yeah. So by the way, you started asking me earlier too about the going to ID. Yes. So, yes. Yes. So the first officer, I won't mention his name, but okay. he later became my first lawyer that i hired wow. okay was a was a police officer was happened to be our first client he's roll of the dice his eye case on something i can't remember what it was it wasn't significant but it came up 
first when they implemented the policy to allow us to attend. And then later, uh, he went to law school, and then later he was the first attorney I hired uh, while I was still at Burleson Pate Gibson, but to assist me, because up to that point I was now doing most everything myself. Jack Pate was more into family law cases and not doing the police stuff so much. Um, but uh, Phil died in 1995, and then uh, 1998, uh, I decided to form what is my current firm. What is the name of that firm? Uh, it's Lion Gorski and Gilbert. Okay. There's John Herring retired a couple of years ago. At one point, John was a partner as well, but we've had some name changes. Uh, Chris Livingston was with us for a few years. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lion Gorski Gilbert, the genesis of the firm is 1998 when I formed formed the law firm. And, uh, and fortunately... Um, my clients, by that point in time, of course, I was leading all the representation that we did for law enforcement, and my clients all stuck with uh, with us and with me and and continued on. And how, so you, you represent DPA, and what other organizations do you represent? Because I'm sure word of your representation and your reputation and, and name starts spreading within the police community because the problems we have here in Dallas, right. every other department has the same issues and the officers face the same issues. Yeah. How yeah. many other organizations? Well, the, the largest single one is the Texas DPS officers association, which is, uh, with retirees. I think there are about 4,000 members, wow. maybe about three thirty five hundred active. I believe, um, Phil and Jack Pate organized, DPSOA in 1974. So they were already on board as a client and continue to be my client. So it was growing already. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. And uh, now per capita, their their size is, you know, I mean, similar to DPA, but per capita, you guys keep us busier than they do. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) I don't, I'm not going to try to figure out why. It's not for me to question, but it seems like per person we have more dpa cases but we we're pretty busy with them now because things have changed to dps too over the years um i think they were slower to come around to i need to call the lawyer i think they're for many years i think troopers for some reason just felt like the state's behind me and i don't really need to call a lawyer and some of it may just be they're spread out around the state so they don't have the same Maybe so always feeling like, you know, my lawyer's not just down the street, you know, type of thing. So, but, but they, they do call us now and they are pretty routine on calling us after an officer involved shooting. Um, for many years, it seemed like they would call us a week after the shooting. Wow. Two weeks after the shooting, you know, but, uh, after they already give the state often, like often yeah. after, but, you know, so, but we've developed good relationship with the rangers in terms of how we think we need to handle those and in their they've been they've been generally pretty good about how they investigate them they don't try to trap them into statements you know right away and that kind of things now they're the biggest organization now texas municipal police association tmpa mm-hmm. they they use lawyers different lawyers the, the officer can ask for a particular lawyer we do i think more work for them in the northern part of the state than anyone else okay we don't have every case that they have but we do do a lot because they have plano and irving grand prairie i mean most of the suburbs are tmpa around here 
okay um so mesquite mckinney so we have a lot of clients in those and then some of those locals the local presidents will call us with individual issues they they might have in their town whether they're covered by tmpa or not they, they'll call upon us and then we also do work for um uh well tmpa has got a lot of the sheriff's association dart we we do work, we represent officers and all those agencies Plus some firefighters. Oh, good. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna. I was gonna ask you yeah. about the firefighters. They yeah. they're also represented D- by y'all. Yeah, the the DFA mm. uh, local. We we do a lot of, of their legal work when they need it. We just had on Clint McNear uh, recently. Yeah, he, and he uh, Clint's great. Yeah, yeah. His his episode hasn't aired yet, but it, but it's it's a it's a phenomenal episode. But he's really big up in the TMPA, and. Um, I want to get in some landmark cases. With I you. worked with his father, Stan. When oh, he was with well, he DPD. was well, he was a long time capers. I'm, yeah. I'm getting Stan on oh, yeah. as well. Stan uh, was, right. uh, yeah, he great hired, family. Oh yeah, it's a long, uh, long first because his grandfather was was a sheriff as as well. So he's got a, he's a third generation law enforcement. Wow. So yeah, that's yeah. But Stan, uh, we're going to get Stan on because he worked. He actually worked at. Uh, uh, Texas eyeball killer case. I don't know if you remember that. That was good. That guy was that killing the prostitutes out in Oak Cliff, and he was cutting out their eyes. Oh, I don't remember he, that one. Yeah, he Charles Albright, I believe it. he just he just died two years ago. But he was uh, wow. Yeah, but uh, Stan worked that, and I think he, uh, I think he worked on the Davis case as well. But I don't know if he were working on the Davis no, case because that was in Fort Worth. There was another big case here in in, in town. What's the other big? Uh, there have been a lot of them. Yeah, Walker Raleigh. Yeah, Walker, oh, okay. Walker Raleigh. Yeah, he worked that case. Yeah. That's it. That's it, Randy. Yeah. Yep, he worked that case too. And uh, yeah, Stan's uh, Stan was a legend. You know, is on on DPD. And, yeah, yeah. He worked under Captain Fritz and mm. yeah. Um, Landmark cases, I want to get to uh, Ron Escaro case. Can you yeah. tell the listener what that was and how that just – that was basically one of the big landmark cases in, in Dallas PD, yeah. the ripple effect. We're, well, know. Ron was shot in the line of duty okay. and seriously injured, um, and uh, his injuries you know, threatened his ability to, to work in the normal assignments at DPD in terms of making forcible arrests and so forth. And that his case was the impetus for us to eventually obtain an agreement with the city uh, for a policy which provides for officers who cannot perform all the essential elements of police work to have a position in the department. Um, And at the time we structured the agreement, it was based on the the size of the department so as the department grew more positions had to open up and i think we started out with 63 positions that were made available for officers who had various injuries some nothing as serious as what ron had but might have had a a knee or even a back injury something that just prevented them from the doctors wouldn't allow them to work the streets what were uh, they doing before before this uh, what was uh, happening for, to the officers forcing retirement Really? Yeah, you know, I mean, and there may have been some cases, you know, where the department picked and choose who they would help and who they wouldn't help. But our approach was, look at, you know, they can do. You have positions, and you can do the, you, you can you can find positions, and because you have them for people who can still offer something to the department after they've given their bodies for you, and uh, um, we were able to accomplish that 
we had we had to file a suit and th- you know we we had to fight through some legal issues we it never got to a point of a judge ruling whether we had a legal basis i remember that the eeoc and has taken a position that a department can determine what the essential functions are. So if a department says our essential functions are everyone's got to be mobilized to to fire a weapon or to make a forcible arrest, the EEOC wasn't going to get involved in telling them that they couldn't have such a limitation. Well, Dallas, Dallas doesn't need that because they have so many jobs and had so many jobs where officers can do that now in small towns where there's a small for example you got a 20 officer department they may not be able to afford to have positions available for people who can't work the streets and so it's going to vary depending on the department but dallas we made it work has other departments tried to point back at this case to to fight for themselves i don't i don't know if they've Looked at this case. I know there are departments that have done that, mm-hmm. although many of them still don't. Um, and some, I think, probably pick and choose a little bit. I mean, whenever we get one of those issues in a town, we first question is, well, do they have any policy? Are they allowing or practice? Are they allowing people to continue on with the job? And, and you have to differentiate between a, a, a permanent problem and a yeah, in a, in a temporary problem. So if you have a workers' comp injury, they're they're always going to be, you know, light duty for some period of time. But it's in the policy that we have doesn't apply to the temporary stuff. It applies to a permanent disability. A permanent disability. Yeah. So Ron Ron Esker, he was permanently disabled. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How big of a pushback did you get from that? I mean, you, you didn't get to the level of of going before a judge but what kind of no, i mean in the you know, department didn't i mean we had to file a suit so I, i'm sure at the time we tried to get them to talk about it and we just didn't get their attention until after a suit was filed but i think once the suit was filed some reasonable people took a look at it i remember we dealt with one of the assistant city attorneys that was prominent in these cases was very reasonable uh person to work with and i think she probably looked at it and advise them look at let's try to figure something out so they basically said let's fix it before they make us fix it yeah exactly and And it worked out for us because i mean a court might have said well city can do what they want to need to do and we may not have won that one i mean you have to we got what we wanted by developing the policy at the time were there similar policies or this is a kind of a landmark uh, case in in dallas is the first time we ever had that and i don't know at the time if other departments because i say very few i right. think even have a policy even to this day about that because some departments are so i remember small, fort yeah. worth had a shooting they had an officer that was uh, paralyzed after a shooting and we were tr- trying to help her get placed in a position they ultimately did it i'm not sure they i don't think they did it by adopting a policy they just agreed to do it because they wouldn't, they were pushing back hard on having a policy at the time. Bob, what year was a Ron shot? Boy, I think it? that policy was about nineteen ninety. Okay. I'm not sure. So it was probably within a few years before that. Wow, that is. I, I, I just, it's, there's so many injuries that are you know that occur from this job. It's not just the the car wrecks. We we get in car wrecks all the time. I've had my share of injuries and hell. Randy and Kent, we oh, we yeah. our bodies are beat up from uh, from doing this job, and and you're right. There are so many 
so many officers that get hurt in these minor injuries that just take weeks or a few months to heal up, but you got to heal up and go back out there. The, the car wreck, I, I looked at a list. This was a, a DPS. I looked at a DPS list years ago, officers who had died in the line of duty. And I've looked at DPA, DPD lists. And it's amazing when you go through the list how many law enforcement officers have died in the line of duty from usually a drunk driver, but in a, in a motor vehicle-related crash. It's amazing. You know, I think the numbers, the numbers uh, I don't want to say there were more than the shootings, but they were probably comparable when you looked at that. Speaking of the, uh, we're going to stay in the 90s since we're on this uh in this yeah, test my memory it, some yeah, more. It's going to be a memory test. Cowboys fans like to live in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true. True story. You mentioned in your bio there was illegal. There was some promotional skipping that was going on. Yeah. Can, can you talk about that case and, and about that fight? Yeah. Uh, 1989-1990 range, Billy Prince was the chief, as I recall, and, and the department was – moving towards affirmative action hiring and promoting and develop some policies. And, you know, the intent, frankly, was good. And in looking back, I mean, the fact that the department has become diverse is a, is a good thing. But there were people that were impacted by that negatively that were left out of opportunities after testing for promotion, for example, the skip promoting issue. I mean, it was blatantly illegal because they were, they were just making decisions on who they were going to promote based on race. You can't, couldn't do it then legally and you can't do it now. Just the reality. You can't do it. There's other ways to do it properly and fairly and making sure the testing is fair. And obviously in hiring the, the better you hire in terms of diversity, the more you're going to promote by natural processes, okay? But uh, they took it to an extreme, and a number of officers filed suit, and ultimately the city had to pay some damages to them and change their, their policies. And it happened, a, it happened a couple of different times during, during the 90s at different levels and different ranks, um, you know. But, I mean, looking back, Back, we're a better department because of the diversity in the department. I right. think everyone can acknowledge that. Of course. You just have to do it in a proper, in a fair way, in a legal way. And, the fair way, and, too, and, you know. Yes. What was, you, if you recall, what are some of the most egregious examples of uh, that you can remember? You don't have to mention names, but do you have any examples that you can tell the listener about? Yeah, I'm trying to remember how they did the, the skipping. Um I think they they would drop. I mean, they would drop huge numbers after the testing was completed in order to pick up someone just solely based upon their race. And I and I can't remember all the details of it, but it just it it wasn't right. It was that a pretty big fight? Yeah, that that was because the, the city the city was well. Billy Prince was the chief when when the council gave some orders. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to speak for Billy. I always had the feeling that that may have played a role in him ultimately leaving. And I probably shouldn't say that just because that's my feeling. I don't. Yeah, I, mean, I never talked to him personally yeah. about it directly, but I know 
he had some marching orders in I, I don't my sense is that you know he had reservations about doing it the way they wanted it done um i can't remember who replaced billy right now who was the next chief after billy left uh i don't remember wasn't vines was it harold warren may have come oh. in right harold was his assistant first assistant harold didn't harold become chief for a period of time i don't think it was long vines vines was not long after that it may have been mac you know what it, it probably was mac vines harold warren may have been in the middle he may have been an interim interim chief but then mac vines came in yeah yeah you representing uh police associations and officers you've had to butt heads with several chiefs right yes and, about uh, every one of them about one every one the other. yeah <laughs> Do, was it was there ever like it that was there just animosity between or did most of them understand that's your role that's their role and y'all just had to butt heads sometimes uh, first of all i think from just in a appearance you know talk talking to them meeting with them on something none of them ever treated me and to my knowledge my associates in a way that would lead us to think they just hate us okay now there were some that were probably easier to work with despite the fact that we filed suits um i mean we've uh, I never really got to know Mac Vines. He wasn't here that long, and personally, I, you know, I had no personal relationship with him. Um, uh, David Kunkel always had a good relationship with David, even though we butted heads, but always good. I mean, to this, I, I, I talked to him. I want to come visit him as my plan, but I talked to him on the phone. Oh gosh, it's been, it's been about a year now, but I, well, after he retired and a couple of times, different times. Um, cause I, I always liked David Kunkel and, um, Benny click had a contentious case with Benny that I can think of that, but, but we always got along fine in our Facebook friends and communicated mm-hmm. a little bit since, since then, since he left, uh, Terrell Bolton, I mean, one of the most high-profile cases I ever had was after he demoted, wrongly demoted, um, and I say wrongly, wrongly morally, it turned out it might not have been illegal based upon what a court later did with two of the people who didn't settle with the city. Yeah. But Terrell Bolton, when I've seen him after that, after he left here, treats me like I'm a long-lost friend, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I think he's sincere about it. I think he is too. Uh, he's in here all the time buying stuff, and yeah, he's very yeah, happy. No, oh yeah. So you know, I really looking back the relationships I've had with chiefs. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that David Brown. Maybe I have that same relationship with David Brown, but also David Brown wasn't very honest with us about a couple of things. I'll be honest, very frank about yeah. that. And looking back at it, and a couple of events that took place, but but most of the chiefs. Most of the chiefs, really, I could, even at the time, but even, certainly afterwards, you know, have well wishes for them and vice versa. So you, you brought up the honesty thing, and I won't dig too far into that, but uh, they used to use polygraphs, correct, to determine it was, some sort of honesty. Yeah, yeah. when, when I was a young, I'll say the young lawyer, you know, in the 80s and 90s on disciplinary cases, they were ordering polygraphs and using them a lot in the disciplinary cases, and and. One of the things, it's not any kind of a, 
a legal accomplishment per se, not a law change or a clear policy change, but as a practice, the department long ago quit using it. And one of the things we kept pushing back is that a polygraph isn't the teller of truth. Okay, it's a it's a measure. If it's done right, it's a measure of certain physiological responses, you know, but it's got to be done with the right kinds of control questions. It's got to be done by an examiner that's well, obviously well qualified and able to read your their responses. And there's so many things that go into getting a, you know, a false positive in a polygraph examination. So we push back a lot on that during these disciplinary cases using experts and, you know, the literature and so forth. I think to the point where that has deterred the department from relying on polygraphs. Uh, the troopers have a state statute that says they can't be ordered to take one. Y'all don't have that. And so, uh, but, but as a matter of practice, it's not been something the department's relied on. I think it has something to do with the way we showed back in the day that it, it's, you, you can't rely on on a polygraph at least as a sole it's a good tool for investigators because a lot of people in and certainly in the criminal world a lot of people confess during the pretest or right. provide information and it's a tool like anything else but it shouldn't be the determining factor and it was being used many years ago as, regularly as a yeah. determining factor it is and i haven't heard of it being used you know in today's age right not at all but i think that leads us into the next portion of body cameras right now they no longer worry about a polygraph with whether what you say is truthful or not they're going to watch the the, the recordings the the cameras including the starting with the dash cams changed everything and you were everything you were pretty big in pushing for officers to be able to review their their cameras before they give a statement on something talk talk about what happened with that so when when the dash cams became the norm course that's one of the first things we wanted to to be able to look at before our client provide a statement and as i recall from the investigator standpoint we we really didn't get too much difficulty on that but there was a couple of people in the administration that just didn't like that idea at all and basically said you know, one of the chiefs at the time that was over CID says, no, I don't think you should be able to see it. And so we went to the DA's office and said, what do you all think? Do you have a problem with it? Because we want to go back to DPD and say, look, you guys, if you guys don't have a problem with it, you know, you're the ones that are going to make right. the case. They didn't have a problem with it. Okay. And so I don't remember if we even had, we may have had a period where we didn't have any police shootings. So it wasn't an issue, but I remember we just said, well, if you're not going to let us see it, we're not going to give you a statement. We'll give it to you when we're ready to give you one. We'll, we'll go to the DA's office and tell them we're ready to show us a video and then we'll give you, a, but we're not going to give it to the DPD people. And I remember, um, I remember being at the racetrack when my associate called me, he was on a shooting and uh, uh, he, he was out there and this issue, and I said, no, we're not going to give one. Just tell him. And a lot of phone calls back and forth, and the next thing I knew, okay, you can get to see the video. And that issue went away. Well, it's fairness, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, yes. really, it, it's not. You know, and, and look, if you're questioning police investigations of officer-involved shootings, if you're questioning the cops in general about an officer-involved shooting, is a, is a 
as a citizen. I, I understand there's the argument, don't see a video, make them just go by their memory. That's the same argument that they make in terms of giving a statement immediately versus two days later. Again, we're not going to change the facts, okay? And even a video is not perfect. There's angles, there's, but it does help the officer see what he did or she did it refreshed their memory and help it, it so you know we we've just been adamant that we need to have an opportunity to see the video so that worked out in dallas after we pushed back um and uh as i said that changed so many things because i remember all the worries when the dash cams became the norm oh my gosh you know they're going to catch us on this or that well it's clear it's cleared as many officers as it's put in jeopardy, okay? And I'll just even just say from a not even a criminal standpoint, administrative standpoint, right. how many IA complaints come in in the video, and same thing with the body cam. Yep. The, the body cam shows, no, it didn't occur this way. And so, um, you know, I guess that's a question to ask officers how they generally feel about it. Now, we have to, we have to tell people, and had to from the beginning. Now, be careful what you're saying in yeah. front of that squad car, you know, because we've all seen the cases where there's a joke made, but two, two officers are killing time, and there's a right. comment, and someone looks at it and says, wow, that's offensive. Or So everyone's got to be on their toes, but, you know, that's the world we're in right now. Everything's on camera somewhere, right? <laughs> well, you, yeah, you just have to assume always now that, you, that you're always being recorded. And... Starting in the the nineties, like like we did, we didn't have that. We didn't have not everybody had a dash cam, and right. I remember going to detail, and only a handful of squad cars actually had a had a camera. Well, everybody avoided those. They took the other cars because it's everybody just has a natural anxiety about being videoed, and I'm, and it took a it was a long adjustment for me. And there at the end, up for from ninety seven to twenty sixteen, when I left the streets. Everybody around me had a body camera, so I was always right. being recorded. But it is it it makes you think about something else, and that does it, it for me because I did know better. Now officers starting now being recorded from the jump, they they don't know any better. But from starting from the way I came up as a rookie and and working the streets, it was something else I had to be a, a conscious of, right? And right. that did in some cases it could it could interrupt. In an instinct of something you've learned through experience on the street, it's something else you have to think about that could inter- inter- interfere with that. But now it's it's the way it is, and uh, right. it has cleared so many officers of of uh, just flat out lies against them. Right. right, and you see you see that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to get into since I'm since I mentioned the uh, topic of lies. Can uh, can you tell the listener about the Mac Vines case? Who's the chief here yeah. in Dallas? So so the Mac Vines. Demise, I guess, began with an officer-involved shooting. Um, the department had just developed, and I think it was Vines that developed this or implemented the policy of officers being required to use reasonable alternatives. That was the term that was used in the policy. Okay, what that is was never made really clear, but there was an incident involving uh, a police incident, police response, and two officers were questioning a suspect and our client i think they were looking for this suspect anyway he he kind of ran up upon them and then when he got up to them 
the suspect, as I remember the details, because I haven't looked this up mm. for purposes of this interview today, but the suspect threw his hand up. I think he had a weapon and maybe threw it or something occurred that prompted the officer to fire his weapon, and I think he killed him, as I remember. So Vines fired this officer for... He, he claimed the al- reasonable alternative is he shouldn't have come up upon the other two. <laughs> he shouldn't have joined in the questioning. That was the alternative. He should have stayed away. That that kind of prompted everything. So we went to, I went through an eye investigation. And uh, E.J. Brown, who you all know, was the eye investigator. And E.J. wrote up a a summary of the investigation and recommended not sustained on the allegations. And it went up through the chain of command and I'm not going to name names here, but it was a chief at the time under Vines and assistant, one of the assistant chiefs that they changed the finding to sustained over EJ Brown's, signature on the report so the report reflected as though ej brown made a sustained finding and i think at that time the eye investigator actually made findings it now it's recommendations and the chain of command has to sign off and actually make the but back in the day the the investigator had a lot of authority to make a finding so uh, i learned that this had happened and I called the assistant city attorney who was handling the appeal. I said, look, at, this isn't legitimate. There's been a problem with the way this has been done. I, I don't know how much detail I gave him, but, you know, this needs to be looked at because I think you're going to find it's going to be embarrassing when you get to this hearing. Yeah, he was dismissive of it. He's a young guy. I don't think he had, didn't felt any authority to talk to anyone. You know, I got to bring this case. I'm going to bring this case. So we have our hearing. Colleague subpoena A.J. Brown, is this your finding? No, it's not, and went through the whole thing. Well, David Truly was a secretary to the commission. He was sitting in on the hearing, and he made a request because of the nature of this basically false report that they were promulgating. He made a request to the city that they do an investigation of what happened. So in the course of the investigation, um, then it gets reported by uh, Greg Holiday, who was, a, I think, a captain at that time. He's now since deceased. And uh, Holiday reported that he'd been contacted by Chief Vines to basically change his story and make sure it's consistent and fall on your sword type of thing. He wouldn't do it. And so that led to... To Vines being not only fired but being charged, uh, he was later acquitted, and and I can't remember the exact criminal charge, but he was later charged of tampering with a witness or obstruction of justice, and that prompted his exit from um, DPD. Yeah, I was actually just reading a, a D Magazine article about Chief. They called it the weirdness factor with uh, with Chief Vines and his whole tenure and how that everything transpired and led up to that firing in in your four de- over four decades of representing uh, 
police officers in this city. Have you seen levels of like look look at like King Henry the Eighth, right? Just I mean, just that kind of leadership and shadiness and and, and bullying. Have well, you, you know, you see an occasion, you see arrogance. Um, some of the chiefs I've mentioned, like David Kunkel and Benny Click, didn't did not exhibit that. Okay, uh, but you see arrogance in terms of how they run the department, or after getting hired, can feel like they can just come in and maybe settle some scores. There have been a couple of them that you know have done some things that I think were vindictive in nature. Um, I think the Vines thing was probably the most egregious, I mean, in terms of some dishonesty that a chief was actually involved in, because usually, you know, some of that stuff might be done by underlings, but not with the chief. Not from the top. Yeah, yeah. not from the top. So that was unique in that respect. Yeah. Well, you know, we had Chief Kowalski on uh, from an early, uh, his episode has not aired yet, and he spoke uh, pretty, he's pretty candid about the, the whole I imagine Chief, he would be. Yes, the yeah. old Chief Bolton. Bob, he goes into detail about with the promotions and how everybody went through the doors and were handed you know, their folder or letter yeah. about how they were getting reassigned. It was very eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chief Bolton was settling scores that he had with people. And uh, the irony is uh, there were eight that were mm-hmm. demoted, and four of them I represent that were all DPA people, and the people that weren't DPA um another lawyer was representing and then two of her clients when the city finally came to a conclusion they were going to settle this case we had a second mediation session uh, they they didn't want to settle they held out they they yeah. i think they were holding out for a pound of flesh because <laughs> i yeah. think they just had such a a dislike of and this wasn't a racial thing okay because um i mean i think let's see i think Two were black and six mm-hmm. were white, or maybe three and five. I can't remember. But what, it wasn't like it wasn't a Bolton just like they're white and we're. It no. wasn't a racial animosity. and there was a female in there too. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't any of that. It was just it was scores that were that maybe were being settled from prior years as as they rose up through the ranks, and then two that that in my opinion could have settled that chose not to. Um, I think because they just want to keep they want more. They want to keep dragging in, you know the, the litigation out. But uh, and then later, the city went to a federal judge to ask that the case be dismissed on a legal argument that that judge accepted and was upheld by the Fifth Circuit. They didn't do it before we settled, but yeah, they, they did it after we settled. I'm not sure why. She, <laughs> Yeah, Chief Kowalski, he was he was uh he was yeah. candid, right, Randy? I yeah. mean, there was some. It's it's, it's going to be a good. You'll, yeah. you'll find you know, those those those. Uh, there was assistant chiefs and deputies, you know, in yeah. that group, mix of rank, those two ranks, and they were all excellent officers. They did their jobs well, all of them. But they I just mean, pissed I, off the and, guy who and, happened to get to the top. Yeah, and they, from a standpoint of performance, they did not deserve to be demoted they would have been great um you know great members of the command staff but uh they just the guy at the top driving the bus didn't like him anymore and And his position was that that i can do what i it's like it's an appointed position i can do what i need to do and uh 
And, you know, that was the argument. And uh, later a judge accepted that argument. Uh, I'm still not sure I understood why from a legal standpoint, but, you know. It was like a Henry VIII uh, move. I mean, he, he, in some cases, I remember he uh, promoted a sergeant all the way to a chief. Is that right? Yeah, I, bl- I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I mean it. That's yeah, that's a pretty big jump in uh, yeah. in, in rank. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, that was a mess. And uh, he wasn't here. He wasn't here very long. No, is there a couple few years of that? I think so. Yeah. And it's city. I don't think the city manager that was in place oh, stayed yeah. very long after that. Yeah, uh, Chief Kowalski mentions him too. Because he approved yeah. all that. I mean, he he, <laughs> he approved all that. Yeah, that episode. That episode. Uh, it. It it is it is going to come out before this one because we actually have it recorded, but it's a uh, it's uh, pretty explosive. I remember when I took the city manager's deposition, I got him to agree that if my clients are right that they shouldn't have been promoted, that it they're probably cost at least ten ten million dollars in damages to them, and he agreed. <laughs> wow, <laughs> got him. Uh, what was your most difficult chief to work with? You know, if you can just you know. Um, well, you know, there's been a few. Back in the early days, Glenn King was tough because he fired a lot of people. It seemed like he did anyway. And we, you know, we had to fight back on a lot of disciplinary cases. He was a tough disciplinarian and, and, uh, and not always well thought out as far as these investigations. I think we were able to win some because they were shit. The slop. They, shit, they, were, too, they yeah. were pushed through too hard. Um, you know, um, Mac Vines in the sense that we had to deal with someone that was, wasn't a good communicator. He wasn't willing to talk with us or communicate very well with us. Uh, you know, they're, they're all a little bit different. Okay. Yeah, for different reasons. Different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you think was the most difficult case involving a chief? Um, it depends how you want to look at it. Uh, under Chief Click, I had a case where internal affairs investigator went to an assistant city manager after we had an appeal hearing on a case and she went to the assistant manager on her own and just said look at i think one of the witnesses for the department didn't tell you the truth and um, the department and chief click click was the chief then and uh, he uh, he or someone in the chain of command i don't remember if click ordered this but he approved it and basically took her off investigations put her on the front desk just taking incoming you know but isolated her essentially and we filed the first amendment i represented her then and filed the first amendment lawsuit and we had to go to the fifth circuit to get the right to even go to trial we lost a trial jury on the facts the jury chose not to offer any damages but that was a tough case because it was very contentious very emotional for my client and and i think the department got that way too it was very a very contentious case so that was a tough individual case even though chief click was not difficult generally to work with and we've gotten along since um you know i mean all of them are hard in their own way you know and uh, uh they're all different so it's hard to isolate one case, yeah. maybe. So what are some of the biggest? Uh, you also represent uh, firefighters, too, right? Yeah, I mean, to a lesser extent, they get into disciplinary situations occasionally. And, and now we're seeing more where the where the DPD is calling them in to give statements. 
after a death in custody case. So if DPA, DPD is out working a case where the paramedics arrive or the fire department arrives and a suspect dies, there's going to be more than just Dallas police officers with hands-on. There's going to be firefighters. So now the department, and this started a few years ago, routinely will want those firefighters to come in to give yeah. a statement. So we've been, we've, it's brought us into that mix. That's something fairly new that maybe five years ago or so we, we weren't seeing. What have you seen dealing with uh, police officers and firefighters? Because you've dealt with police for so long, and now you're this is fairly new dealing with uh, yeah. firefighters and or first responders, but different. You know, we're, we're parallel, but we're, we're, we take different routes. But what do you? what's the biggest difference you've seen? Well, the um, internal affairs process is, is pretty similar. And, and our ability to work with them and be present during an interview, all that's the same, both departments. Um, I think historically the firefighters have done more of their own, like going to, even to internal affairs or going, you know, in grievances, handling those things themselves or getting the union to help them. The union is historically in the fire side has been their representative in a grievance. So the union leadership at the fire department, fire association, is now becoming, I think, more cognizant of let's turn this one over to the lawyers. We don't want to get too deep in it ourselves, or we want to make sure that there's legal advice being given here to our member. So they've turned over more of those cases. It's probably for the best. I mean, yeah. really, I mean, it's just just for their own protection, yeah. right? Yeah. But that was a, is that that's like a practice that's. It's a long uh, practice. It's been pretty entrenched. Yeah, and so to... it's evolved. The changes are evolving. Yeah. And, yeah. As it should. Yeah. I mean, everything evolves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, you know, I've heard this meant, said before. Everyone loves a firefighter. Not everyone likes a cop. I yeah. mean, that's the reality out in the community. And, and maybe that's even changed with firefighters. But there's, there is a different perception, I think, in terms of people in the public and how some people are more distrustful of police officers and others, but there's probably a far fewer that are distrustful of the fire department. So they don't have the same contacts in dealing with the public that might evolve into a complaint. I think as you all do, True. I think there's a difference there. And that and you see that you see that yeah. first, just from an investigative standpoint. Yeah. From yeah. Y'all? Okay. What does it mean to you personally that you, through, I guess, over four decades of, of, uh, of representing first responders, going against some some of the city's Goliaths, right, and long-standing policies and practices, what does that mean to you personally to walk away victorious on our behalf? Um, I'm always proud if we're victorious, whether it's me or if it's an associate that's handling a case. Um, I don't. I don't think of it in terms of who am I going against as much as what are we trying to accomplish in this case and what have, what have we accomplished? If we accomplish something that's beneficial to everyone, then that's a win I'll take any day of the week. I, I, I don't take a particular pride that it's the city of Dallas or it's DPS. It, it's just, it, did we do something good? Did we accomplish what we were hired to accomplish? And some things are more mundane. We're hired to do a job, and we're doing our job. And some things get a little more personal because of the nature of the issue. And 
the importance it might have long term. Um, so there, everything's a little different in how you might perceive it, but um, I'm just happy to get a win too. So, what's your favorite win? Not not oh, necessarily man. just policy uh, or individual officer, or, or what's your what's your biggest one? Your oh, favorite? Okay, um, I don't know. I can, I hate. I'd love to be able to tell you there's one. Uh, I mean, obtaining the right to counsel after a shooting just sticks out in my mind is the most important thing I've ever done, been involved in, because I, I think I'm the first lawyer to ever do that in Texas. Because I know it's not been done in the suburbs up to that point in time. Uh, DPS, no one was doing it. And I've asked Houston lawyers when they, they started doing it was after I did. And I figure Houston, if anyone did it, earlier it would have been them and it's not them so i think i'm the first lawyer it's not scientific uh, you know scientifically based but write it down i think, yeah. I think i'm the first lawyer to do that and I, that's the thing i'm most proud of because that's there forever okay um you know aside from that i mean i think what we've done with the escaro issue with you know saving jobs i mean we had but we've also had a lot of other cases we've been fortunate enough to have an arbitrator see our way or a civil service panel whatever and people that got their jobs back that that went on to great careers you know there's a few people that have gotten their jobs back that got into trouble later i mean i'm not going to sit here and tell you that i'm rehabilitating people that can't <laughs> be, that couldn't be rehabilitated it's just that it is something i'm grateful of and or feel well about when i see someone went on to have a career you know, that, that maybe we had a hand in helping them get back to work. Now, on the flip side of that, yeah, which ones have you lost that you, you wish you would have won? Um, really wish I would have won that First Amendment case because I really believed in it that our client was retaliated against for speaking out properly to the city manager. So that was disappointing. Plus, plus we had a fight long and hard to, to get past the hurdle of is it even an actionable First Amendment case. Because okay, we made some law that actually has been cited in many cases about what is a matter of public concern. That's the that's the buzzword in a First Amendment case before you can even get in front of a jury is, was it a matter of public concern? Not just a personnel issue or something that would have been unique to that individual. So we fought hard to get that, and that case has been cited for that. That just got us to the trial, but I would have wished the jury would have seen it our way there the jack ross case in 1984 um can you explain that's another that? one yeah so 1984 the republican national convention was in dallas and shortly before the convention or may have been within a week or t it may have been while people were still were just gathering for it uh jack ross was a police sergeant very good sergeant uh working down near the convention center there was someone, there was a man that was beating up another individual and stomping on him, as I recall. I mean, it was pretty serious. So Jack came upon it, and the guy ran. Jack chased him down. Jack shot him, killed him. And at the time, the policy was Chapter 9 of the Penal Code, and he, he there was not any question that he was justified in using deadly force under chapter nine. And that was the DPD use of force policy, but the eyes of the world were coming. And certainly the eyes of the country were coming to Dallas because of the convention coming in and a chief Prince 
terminated Jack. Um, and so we went to the civil service appeal, which, you know, at the time was, I don't remember the exact makeup, but it was like a member of the city council and then two other appointed people or three other, there was always at least a council member on there, maybe, maybe more than one at that time. Cause they've made changes since, and they, up, they upheld the firing, which was disappointing. But then we have under the steps, we have the right to file in district court and ask a court to review it. But the review is a substantial evidence review at the time, which means the court is supposed to uphold the finding of the administrative body if there's even a small amount of evidence to support it. So it's a tough standard. But judge ruled in our favor. Judge said you shouldn't have he shouldn't have been fired. He followed the policy of the department, which was the policy of the criminal law. And that was a great victory temporarily, but the city appealed that to the Supreme Court or to the to the Court of Appeals. And I remember the Court of Appeals decision was was basically we're not saying our judgment would be any different than the judge but the law is under substantial evidence we have to defer to the administrative body so they overruled the judge so that was very disappointing um, jack went on to have a great career in the private sector with the big company in corporate security and he you know he, he came out of it okay in that sense but that was a very disappointing case because i think jack was right i think it was the political moment didn't favor him at the time how long did that whole pro that process take oh uh, probably uh i imagine that was shooting in 84 probably played out for the next three at least probably three years or more by the time we got through the appeal damn that's a lot of you stress know, for jack yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man. So that was a very disappointing case i'd like to have that one that that's one i'd like to have back that that sounds like it fell prey to a lot of, like a lot of just politically charged yeah wrong time yeah. and wrong circumstances that are going on in the world and it just it just and chief prince thought that was the thing he thought it was the right thing to do and i you know uh, we we've been friends since we worked together on the memorial uh, police memorial board and he, he was the president when we built it and i took over for a year right when it com completed until they phased out the need for a board so I don't think uh, there were any hard feelings. Just that was something he felt he needed to do, and I didn't agree with it. But yeah, business. It goes. I mean, it's, it's it right. is it is still a right. you know, a business yeah. uh, viewpoint, right? Yeah. You you mentioned that board. You you wear a lot of hats in in your long career. Uh, what are some of the board uh, boards you sit on? Well, uh, that was one, obviously an important one. Mm -hmm. uh in building memorial and there were a lot of people that went into that i mean they you know and a lot of people donated a bunch of money and that that was needed and uh did a lot of work uh billy prince was certainly certainly the primary one that shepherded that through um you know i i've probably been on boards before i was on a corporate board a company a small company that a client ran before he passed away for a little bit but uh you know uh, I don't. I don't sit on boards typically. So the the memorial board was probably your big. That's, oh yeah, that's, yeah. That was that was the biggest accomplishment aside from something I did on a paid level. Can you explain the honor of being a Texas super lawyer? Yeah, the been. super lawyers are. Been, I, I don't know how many years now. They've probably been about uh, fifteen or more years now in effect, and uh, they 
have lawyer ask lawyers, all licensed attorneys, to vote for people in various specialties or, or practice areas, and uh, that beat all the standards that they would think are high standards of the legal profession they say it's a small percentage of lawyers that I, they publish as the super lawyers i don't know all the details but i've been lucky enough to be named that for i think since the inception so that's quite an honor so as long as they're remembering me so <laughs> i'll be happy to accept it no so i was thinking it was a group of lawyers who got together and put capes on and, uh, <laughs> and, and fought major no, cases a, it's, in not, a, it's not a secret society or no, anything against it's evil just, yeah 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 you've been going for like i keep mentioning over four decades that, it, that it, yeah uh, 44 just, years november 6th i got my i got word i passed the bar so uh, or that may have been when i sworn in I think I was sworn in like two days after I passed the bar. A lot of long hours, a lot of middle of night phone calls, a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, taking time away from family. I want to talk about your rock in in life and and your wife. Can you talk a little bit about her? Well, my wife was a nurse when I met her, practicing nurse at Medical City. And uh, I'll never forget uh, all the times that I called her at three in the morning well because she worked the night shift and what are you doing i said well i'm at a police shooting yeah. <laughs> she always remembers those phone calls and uh and we got married in 1985 and uh have two wonderful kids and you know and she really you know she did what my mother did when i was a young lawyer working and busy and you know, I mean, I didn't have to work every Saturday or anything of that sort like my dad did, but I would also have to go out at night and do some things and go on business trips and things of that sort. She she took care of doing what needed to be done to raise the kids. So, uh, you how did you guys that, meet? Uh, a friend of hers is a nurse that worked with her, and a friend of mine was his girl bo- uh, boyfriend at the time, so they connected us. So actually, they. They introduced us. We 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 had a quick uh, dinner on New Year's Eve in 1983 to 1984. That was that New Year's Eve, in, I guess, of '84. Eight. And uh, uh, she had to go to work after that, so it was very introductory. And she was getting out of a relationship, so we really didn't connect up for a few months later when our friends secretly planned to have us both show up at a restaurant. <laughs> Didn't tell her I was going to be there and didn't because they just insistent this was going to work. <laughs> they knew better than yeah, you did at that yeah, point. So those are always nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about your kids? Yeah. My, my daughter is uh, working on her dissertation uh, for a PhD. She's at the University of Texas. Uh, she's been a special ed teacher after she graduated from uh, SMU. She went and got her master's at UT in education, UT Austin. And then uh, came back taught here and then when her now husband transferred from Houston up to Austin she moved down to Austin and while she was teaching there one of her professors called her and said look at I've got a grant I need help on you can come you know you, you've been talking about going get your PhD eventually and come on over and you can work on the grant and it'll pay for school and this and that and so that was a few years ago two years ago now two and a half and she should finish up next spring so uh and she wants to teach uh, at a college somewhere she's teaching actually at ut now one i think one course and then teaching online course for another university mm-hmm. and uh she's published now and 
going to conferences and you know building so the, her, uh, the Gorski her reputation. Yeah, she's a she hard got worker. The work as my too. son, my son's a director of photography over at AMS Pictures in Dallas. They do a lot of uh, documentaries and commercials, reality shows, and he's a guy behind a camera. He's really good with that, and he works he works as hard as any of us. So the bloodline yeah, so just I continues. Hope, hopefully, knock wood. No, yeah. you, uh, they've, it, they've always been hard work. Always in school, they were just always very diligent. You know, uh, kind of like me. You know, we all Gorskis. We tend to have to overachieve. You know, <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. You know? Put it mildly. Yeah. Hey, the the Dallas Police Department has benefited from that overachieving in your work ethic well, for decades. Thank you very and much we will for that. Continue, I appreciate that. We'll continue to <laughs> yeah, uh, reap those rewards. Were you, the ATO, uh, it was started in 1999. Do you recall back when they when they came up with this idea? And what did what did you yes. think about this? Yeah, and, and I think uh, we dev- I guess Bill Carollo developed yep. the, the idea. I think Bill was this. It was Bill. Bill and Glenn White. Um, Glenn must have been president then. I think yes. during those days, and Tom Popkin, and Eddie Crawford were all on the e board, and um, you know. The need has always been there, but they just honed in on. Wait a minute, we can do we can do more for officers who and their families who need our help, and uh, it just blossomed in terms of fundraising and so forth. And Were you consulted on that when that started? Up? Yeah, you know I. Th- I, I want to say, I mean, I knew they were working on it, but okay. I, I don't think they asked for me necessarily. I mean, okay. you know, the guys that were and gals that were leaders back then, you always had great leadership in this mm-hmm. association. I mean, these these folks knew how to organize, you know, ATO. They knew what they needed to do, just like building this building and things that they did. There was great leadership back then as there is now. You've been very lucky with your leadership at DPA. Yeah, we have. And we, uh, we, you know, Mike Mata, he's getting, you know, from president standpoint, he's a little long in the tooth. So he, we're hoping <laughs> that uh, we have somebody waiting in the wings that's going to pick it up and keep running with it. Well, when I think back, you know, when I started and, uh, I mean, Bobby Joe Dale, I can, I mean, I, I didn't, I knew Charles Burnley. I think Charles may be in president when I was still like a clerk in mm-hmm. that period there. Bobby Joe Dale, I never got more, I think, aggressive in terms of preaching officers' rights when he was president. And, you know, Dick Hickman, I mean, Dick was tremendous. And because uh, uh, Dick was very politically active and uh, and well-spoken and outspoken, and that was important back in those days. Monica Smith same way and then glenn picked it up and i'm mean, missing people in here here yeah. picture but ron pinkston obviously uh but uh uh you know and, and dp dpa needed that in the 80s and 90s in particular because there were so many things evolving with officers rights with the legal issues over hiring and promotions the disability issues all that stuff i mean we look about the 80s and 90s were really fruitful periods for that's that's when my my law firm expanded in the sense of me hiring you know it's starting out with one guy that i hired in 19 1994 i think it was it was the first lawyer i hired and you know um you know then that add more added later you know and now 
there's you know maybe five people, four or five at any given time working on your business. What are some of the What are some of the guys under you right now? Uh, John Snyder. Um, John's a former officer in uh, in Irving and in uh, 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 sheriff's department. Actually, he worked in Pasadena too before he went to law school. And uh, Robert Rogers, a former prosecutor who just got acquittal the other day in uh, Hunt County for a TMPA member and, and also a murder acquittal. F- and that was a murder case and another murder acquittal in uh, uh, Burnett, Texas uh, last month. Uh, Robert's been busy the last few years with yeah, prosecutions for officers. Uh, and Zach Horn in Zach and I go back to when he was an infant, and uh, my son and him were in a playgroup together, and that's kind of <laughs> that's how we met the Horns. And eventually, when Zach went to law school, he started clerking for us. And much like I wouldn't leave, I joke about I wouldn't leave Burleson Peyton Gibson after I graduated. They had to keep me. I Zach kind of forced the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so and they do a great job. Oh, they're great. We had attorney Neil Moranto, who is a former North Richland Hills officer, just left to go to the DA's office in Karen County. That was a situation for him that he wanted to take. He's a, uh, and, but Neil did a fine job for us while he was with us. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, John actually had a, he wanted me to ask you a question. Oh. He came in, yeah, right before uh, you came in, he was in this office and. He wanted me to ask you if you were actually billing the DPA for this interview for sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to make sure it's real clear. You no. Know, <laughs> and I didn't even think about it. Boy, he did. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's the kind of question I know he'd ask. Yeah. What else? What is Zach? What is Zach prompted you to ask? Oh, oh Zach. Zach had lots, but I'm not going to mention okay, them. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fine. We'll I'll, that- I'll deal with this in there uh, in a personnel meeting. Zach did want to know who his your favorite attorney was in the group out of the three, but I'm sure you won't <laughs> hey, answer. You know that. what? After John's question, you can't ask me who my favorite child is. You're not going to. Or my favorite horse in the stable. Okay. Yeah. That's one All thing right. we haven't talked about. You okay. mentioned it earlier being at the track. Okay. Talk about how you got into the horse racing and owning horses, and uh, how much joy you get out of that. You know, I started going to the horse races as a high school kid in in growing up in Western New York, and. Uh, in 1991, I had a chance to, to buy into a little partnership for the first time to get involved as an owner, and uh, I've, I've had, had some interest either with friends or partnerships or sometimes even by myself on horses since then. So it's just something I like to do. It's my passion in, in terms of uh, side activity, and uh, I have a lot of fun with it. Sometimes it's frustrating, but when they win – it sucks me back in for some more. So, what are some of the horses' names? Uh, okay, so I I own a little piece of a horse named Hidden Connection that went to the Breeders' Cup last year and the Kentucky Oaks and uh, this spring. And uh, she's on a break, but she's coming back. She's training now to come back to race. And uh, uh, another horse called Downtown Abbey, ah, and uh, that. that that ran yeah uh she's by spites town is her sire so i named her downtown abbey and uh she she won at the fairgrounds this winter and raced pretty well at churchill downs and she's she's gonna hopefully come back to the races next year and a few other ones some some you know 
Is there a chance that it's going to be Bob Racehorse Gorski? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we got to we got to come yeah, up with a yeah, different one. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're such beautiful animals. God, they're powerful at the yeah. racehorse. Yeah, just, and they're you know there's something calming about being around a horse anyway. I, yeah, there's some of at least know, for me anyway. What Doctor T is real big on. Uh, she's one of our ATO counselors. She's real big on the equine therapy. Oh sure. And they're they're so empathic. You yeah. know, they, they you know they're. They're such good, right? Great animals for uh, companionship and, and and stress and anxiety. Yes, love them. Yeah. So we often ask other officers on this podcast what they have advice for younger officers. You have a different perspective. You know, you're not necessarily doing the job, but you have a very good understanding of what the job is, and you have a different perspective of of what we actually do. So, what advice would you have for any of the younger officers? Well, I mean, I, one thing, obviously. Just think about what you're doing, okay? Don't make rash decisions. Uh, be truthful and honest in what you do. I mean, whether you're dealing with the public, whether you're dealing with your chain of command, you know, uh, we, we see people, unfortunately, over the years that make mistakes in, in, it, in the, the mistakes in terms of being forthright with their department about an event the event itself may probably won't get them fired <laughs> but they worry about what the backlash and maybe cut a corner or hold back and you know it's it's believe it or not it's always the best policy to tell the truth now when we have clients that get involved in major legal issues that's one reason we want to talk to them we want to know what happened so hopefully we can provide the best light for their their truth and also obviously in worst case scenario there may be a reason they can't discuss it with anyone because it's you know problematic but before they get themselves into a bigger hole it's just always important to be truthful that's great advice and and it's simple but it's you know i mean i can't tell you all what to do about how to handle a certain call that's your business i can only tell you from my perspective just and think about it. Think about what you're doing before you act. And think about your relationships with people outside. Because we do get a lot of cases where officers get involved in situations outside of the job that create conflicts. So that be a problem at home, a spousal situation, or a girlfriend, or drinking off-duty. And there are a lot of these cases that go bad because not because something an officer did on the street. It's your life is scrutinized outside of the job, the, the nature of the work you do. So you, you've got to be, you got to be thinking 24 seven. That's that unfortunately is part of our, uh, it, you know, that's part of it when we buy a ticket to do this job, right? It's part right. of the admission that we're going to be under a microscope. Right. I have one final question for you. Sure. I got a quote from you, uh, and it meant a lot to me just reading it. I want to hear what it, me- what it meant to you. You said, we're on the side of angels when we represent police. Well, you know, I, I got that quote. That I, didn't, I didn't generate that comment, uh, our side of the angels. I heard that from Ross Perot back in, uh, I guess, about 1990, there was a big push there's always been a push for civilian review, subpoena power, and all that stuff. But there was a big push at that time. I mean, a serious push for a civilian review board with subpoena power. And DPA actually had a referendum uh, 
or collected signatures and threatened a referendum to stop it. They collected, if I remember, like 60,000 signatures. Glenn yeah. uh, Monica was president and Glenn White was vice president. Ross Perot got involved to help the DPA because he was behind the DPA's position that this wasn't needed. And he came in. We had a, I remember we had a meeting here, not here, the old building. And, uh, uh, and he used that term. And it's, it resonated with me. And, you know, look at not every client we have is an angel. I mean, let's, I'm not here yeah. to, to say, you know, I'm not, I don't drink a Kool-Aid that tells me that, you know, cops can't do anything wrong. I wouldn't have a job if there wasn't problems, obviously. But I think those mistakes are far in the minority, just like, the traffic stops that go bad, we hear about the ones that hit the news with the viral video, and that's only one of 10,000 that might have occurred in this country the night before. Um, so, you know, but overall, cops and office, first responders, not just police, but, but I'm focused with y'all today, you know, you do a job that 98% of the public wouldn't even think about doing. I couldn't do it. I could represent you, and I think I'd do all right, I'd do my best, but I couldn't be in your shoes. I could never go out and do what you do. And uh, so you know, the numbers of officers who, who are bad or go bad are, are, are very, very, very small. But most, most of them are on the right side of the law and the right side of our moral code of, in our society, and uh, that's the side that we're – we're proud and, and honored to be to be on and have been on over my career. Well, man, that's uh, that's the perfect way to wrap this up, don't you think, Joe? I believe so, Kent. Randy? Yes, sir. Bob, you know, I don't think, you know, you've, you've been working for us for a long time and you said you wouldn't have a job for this, but I don't think people know how much you do for the AT over the years. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I'm thankful for, well, how much support you've given these officers for our golf tournaments, the purse bingo, every single thing we do, you're there to help give them back. And we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. But, you know, again, we've just been so blessed to have to be brought in. I've always felt we've been brought into the family of officers, which, you know, I don't know. Again, we can't. We could never do your job, but to be even considered in in the family over the years is uh, is the blessing that I've been, and my family and my associates have been given. So thank you for that. Well, thank you guys. Right. I mean, I really, I, I don't know that that at least I can't verbally explain what you guys actually mean, and and knowing that there's somebody there when when we're having our bad moments, that somebody's going to show up and be there for us. You know, that's. That's what police officers do for everybody else. And to have somebody like you guys show up when we're in the midst of our chaos, it's, it's truly, uh, I don't even know, wonderful, fantastic, all the, all the big words. Thank you, and thanks for having me. This has been fun. Well, thank you. Thank you for your continued support of Dallas uh, PD, the DPA, police officers across the state. You are a treasure in the police world, and, I just, and for this city. And every officer that's come long before me and are going to come long after me, the cases that you worked on and the ripple effects of the landmark cases that you you made happen for us and it went in our favor and did the right thing, right? You did the right thing for our officers and put them in a better position to be better people, 
to learn from their mistakes and to just have them experience pure fairness. Thank you. Thank you.